0: interesting how we got together. Last year when I was giving the talks to the medical students, uh, we got some interface between diabetes and we thought it was a good idea for the medical students to be exposed to that. So you guys went over there, gave a the talk, and since, you know, we were just chatting about all this overlapping, eventually they invited me and said, well, it's a bad idea if you tell us about these other sugar problems. They're the ones that I actually take care of. I don't touch a patient with diabetes, don't worry. I yeah. never do it. So and the good thing about this, of course, is that you guys are, you know, experts in sugar and all things related. So but what I'm gonna give you is a little slice of the type of patients we're seeing over there. <clears throat> The list is quite long, so I picked some of the ones that we see more often. And what I'm going to do at the beginning is to do a little introduction that makes here you know, of, of the audience, uh, some people might be a little bored because you know about this, but just to put a frame in terms of, you know, how the sugar metabolism works <coughs> and how we can approach the diagnostic and the treatment based on the biochemistry of the sugar metabolism. That I guess you know it's the way to go because it's the only way to understand this. So let's start with some introductory things. So uh, one of the things that it's quite important to remember, and this is in a very nice slide that we use over and over, is as everybody knows, uh, intermediate metabolism is basically what the word means. It's and basically interaction between all the three main components in our diets but eventually they get together here and, you know, usually we are breathing air and we have enough oxygen, we oxidize this to the end, and we generate ATP that is, the, you know, the currency that drives everything that happens in our body. So here, of course, I'm going to talk about the sugar, but it's very important to remember that When we get proteins and amino acids get deaminated, the acids eventually get here, and we can, you know, make gluconeogenesis that is one of the main keys in hypoglycemia when something fails over there. Of course, the other big area is the use of fats to spur sugar. Remember that, you know, we cannot actually different from other animals, use the fats to generate sugar per se, but it's a way to save a lot of sugar especially, you know, after the first few hours that we consume the sugar, the glycogen, glycogen again to start working. So, and this is quite important because basically we're going to talk about diseases that involve these two areas. So, this is supposed to go forward. Ah, oh, okay, okay, this is a little thingy. About glycogen-stored disease that we're going to talk later. Okay, so these simple slides are somewhat, you know, a snapshot of in a very schematic way, how our bodies handle the foods, in this case the sugar. So it's the only thing I basically you know boxed here was you know the carbohydrates. This also applies for proteins. So when we eat every day, we got you know breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever, eventually sugar gets more. And when the sugar gets more, and this is something you know very well, Well, you know, the pancreas senses that, and I was at some point very tempted to get into the hyperinsulinism thing, but I said probably not, because you know, but you know, know, it's quite fascinating how, you know, the beta cell senses this. And eventually, you know, the insulin (coughs) is raised, you know, goes and pushes metabolism into basically what is two things. To use the sugar that it's in the bloodstream, this sugar goes everywhere, especially you know muscles, brain, and the excess basically gets stored in the liver. So this is usually the way things work initially, and of course you know you can hear the muscles, the red cells. Remember the red cells, you know, do only you know anaerobic glycolysis, and eventually you know the lactate goes back. You know the Cori cycle we're going to show you now. So here. In between meals, what happens? Well, if we are healthy and we don't have any enzyme defect anywhere, our sugar levels should be normal all the time. So how that happen? Well, when it's no more source for sugar from outside, basically we start using the one that we have inside. And this is basically for the glycogen that, remember we don't have tons of glycogen in our liver. It's like, you know, three hundred grams or something like that, four hundred grams. It lasts for Couple of hours, something like that, and eventually, you know, we need something else. Otherwise, you know, sugar works her One big thing that we use is fats that are mobilized, and this is a way to spur sugar. So it's kind of a balance between these two guys. And I'm going to show you a nice slide that explains that. So eventually, we stop eating. <coughs> what happens is that, well, the sugar in the glycogen is gone, and as I said, this goes away pretty fast. So the main source of energy here is the ketone body, so we keep using our fats. Glyconeogenesis is working, so here's the amino acids going back here, but eventually we <coughs> can live on ketone bodies for a long time. Actually we have a lot of kids in our side that has you know, incredible seizure that are ketogenic diets, so we have like 80-90% of fats, and well, they are around. So sure, it's not the healthiest way to go around, but you can survive on that. So if you have plenty of food bodies and you have enough water, usually you can live for probably a good month or so. So eventually, you know, things start, you know, you start consuming your own proteins and all this stuff. So, but normally what happens is that, well, the next morning we eat again. So the whole thing goes back to the first stage and the cycle keeps going. Mainly what happened here in all our patients with problems that are related with hypoglycemia, if that is a block somewhere in this system, one enzyme doesn't work, so at some point during this day when things should be happening one after the other, is a block. And that's when the patients start getting hypoglycemia. So the timing of the hypoglycemia in terms of diagnostic workup, is critical. So this is a simple way to put everything together. And these are, you know, basically the sources of sugar <coughs> and the milk <coughs> will get converted eventually. You know, this is, you know, very well, you know, the key component in this pathway because from here, <coughs> we basically can make glycogen, we can do glycolysis, or you can get into the pentose phosphate, you know, pathway, so we can, you know, generate, reduce, you know, NADPH, and also we can generate... Uh, ribose to synthesize, <coughs> you know, uh, DNA, RNA, and all this stuff. So, here eventually the whole purpose of this, when we go down, is to generate two pyruvics, and the two pyruvics eventually gets into the Krebs cycle, and the Krebs cycle eventually ends up, you know, into the respiratory chain, and we generate ATP. So here, of course, you know the fructose, and yes, this whole thing about you know the fructose eventually gets here, and basically, you know, we have this block that, you know, it's not a major thing, but it's probably not a real disease, but if we have a block here, we have, you know, a retired fructose intolerance, so these patients sometimes are super healthy because they figure out themselves that eating anything with fructose makes them sick, and, of course, you know, have the whole story about death to say, oh, you never had cavities so, <coughs> and you look very, you know, smart to tell the patient, oh, you know what you have. So, but when they get sick, they get super sick. Especially when they are little after six months or so, when they start, you know, getting fructose into the diet, they can get into liver failure and renal failure. So, it's potentially a deadly disease if we don't control it. Otherwise, they're completely asymptomatic. And when they get older, usually the tolerance is a little better. So, and here, with well, galactosemia from the point of view of hypoglycemia per se, it's not a disease that gives you too much hypoglycemia because of the actual defect here. What might happen is that as a newborn, we have no screening. Problem is, the newborn screening takes about 10 days to get back. So, like, two or three months ago, we got a kid in liver failure here that was about five, six days old. So, and came to the hospital, liver failure, job, everything wrong, so the kid has a so, and I called the state. Said, I have a kid with this. <coughs> take it again from me right away. They give me a diagnosis. So treatment is super easy. But at that point, of course, you know the kid was really sick. So it's not only just to give soy milk. You have to wait until the kid recover from the liver failure. That so far, you know, we see the kid two months ago, and it's getting much much better. So. The hypoglycemia in that case will be more related with the liver failure and being sick than the actual problem. So, a patient that has galactosemia <coughs> and is already past a newborn period, they don't get sick as the new ones. <coughs> they basically get progressive intellectual disabilities and damage for the galactose accumulation, but they don't get hypoglycemia. So, it's more related with the developmental problem. So problematic with galactose is always even if we restrict everything from the diet and candies and medications and syrups or whatever, well the body synthesized galactose. <coughs> we need galactose because you know all the glycosculation process that we have in the body, a bunch of galactose are everywhere, so it's a endogenous production. So the outcome of these patients is not perfect if you compare with PKU that historically is you the gold standard for treating metabolic So, of course, you know, the issue when we talk about hypoglycemia is to figure out well, what is hypoglycemia where we put a number? Well, to be honest with you, from a clinical point of view, at least from my end, is this forty five. So, and the issue is this if we talk to neonatologists, of course you know, they can say that they can't survive with 20. What I would say is true, but their brains are not really super happy with 20. What is also true, but the issue with 45 or 40, you want, is this: when the sugar level reaches this, all these normal responses that the body has are working and are in place. So, if we take samples when the sugar level is here, we get a slice of what's going on with the fat metabolism. Gluconeogenesis and with the sugar metabolism. So we can understand where the problem might be. So we don't need to wait until this goes back to 20. And of course, you know, here, you know, the classical things, but, you know, if you, and this is quite important. So especially kids that are chronically ill, so we have kids, you know, with glycogen disorder that run, you know, with 45 or 50 of sugar, and they're running around you. Said, uh, sure, they look sick because they have big bellies and all this, and they're short, but they're used to it, so they figure out. So they live in ketones and they are synodic and all this stuff. So, of course, this is kind of dramatic. but you know, well, if you get here, you can be dead. So, it's quite important just to, okay, when you're around here, start doing your labs, let's try treating the patient. Doing the labs, I'm going to go after this later on, is critical. And, and I basically this more applied for, you know, for the PITS president. So when they have a kid with hypoglycemia in the ER, or in the floor or anywhere, and the sugar is right here, everybody gets a panic attack. Especially if the kid is seizing in front of them. What I understand. So what they do? Well, if the kid has a line already, they grab sugar and push sugar. If they don't have a line, well, it's more problematic. Try to put a (laughs) line. Eventually somebody's going to put a line, but that's worse because if they were taking like two, three, five minutes to put a line, when they put a line, the sugar is probably here, so they push sugar. Well, as soon as you push sugar, the sugar goes into the bloodstream, hits the pancreas, everywhere, so everything gets even again. So you take the samples like five minutes later, the samples are probably samples of a basal state and are useless. It's very difficult to interpret that. So, the opposite would be to fast the kid, what sometimes we do. Usually, nowadays, I probably would recommend to the fasting test. It's doable, but you have to have a place, nurses, everybody knows exactly what you're doing. So, you reproduce what happened with the patient. So, in a nutshell, what happened here is, well, we got diet, we got these sources, you of the Cori cycle, these are the forms involved in this, Glycogen, amino acids, gluconeogenesis, pyruvic, and here, as I said, to save sugar. So, the very easy and simple way to understand this is to divide this <coughs> in these two areas, or either we increase the amount of sugar, we do this, Or we decrease the use burning fats and ketones. And the ketones somehow are like, you know, like a partially oxidized fat that the body has a way to send to a brain and to a heart to be again converted to acetyl A, get into a Krebs cycle, and be burned to the end. So it's like a, you know, it's an intermediate thing that is quite handy. So here, as I was telling you before about this slide, so well, we have the meal and the insulin is super high and we start going down. So after four hours we need something else. So here's the glycogen, but as I said six hours or so, glycogen start going down. So we need to make sugar from somewhere else so we start making glyconeogenesis. And this is more or less, you know, here are, you know, the sequence of the problem. Sure, when we have a kid with hypoglycemia among the samples, checking the hormones is critical. If you fast the kid, well, it's even better. So, but of course they are, you know, warning So if you need an infusion rate of sugar of 15 or 20, and the kid gets hypoglycemic after 20 minutes of not giving sugar, well, probably hyperinsulinism is first person like <laughs> So because of this, because of the time. So you go over this, and here eventually, in during fasting, we get the fats, and we get the ketones. So, as I say, you know, you run 40 days, and you're going to keep going with this. You're going to probably have a super big headache, but you're alive, so it's okay. Okay, so this, as I said, is a normal response. So one important thing is the free fatty acids is going to be up, so this is one of the key samples. We ask for free fatty acids and the ketone values also have to be measured okay, so how do we approach this? well there's a million ways to do it assuming that the only, the only feature is hypoglycemia nothing else, it's not acidosis or ketosis or anything like that but the ketone values are the key, so it's either hypoglycemia with high ketones or hypoglycemia with low ketones or no ketones so low ketones is important because sometimes this is not liked by the book so it's not that it's zero ketone. It's a little ketone, But it's the same thing you do when you check the hormones. The hormones sometimes are low and high relatively to what they should be, and you can make an interpretation. So they'll say, well, it's a response, but it's not the one that we expect. So and that's you know what you know the stuff. Okay. So the timing, as I said, <coughs> the beginning, of hyperinsulinism, and return frugal intolerance. Phase two the glycogenosis and, and of course, you know, the glycogenosis and the gluconeutinous effect is kind of a definition, you know, five-day so actually you can consider that, you know, some of these types are gluconeogenic defects, because it goes back. And eventually when you get in phase three, so after, let's say, the typical case is a newborn, that is born fine, everything okay, six months of age, the mother decides one night to stop feeding the baby at three in the morning because she's tired, and the pediatrician told her, hey, the baby doesn't need it. Three a 3 a.m. Baba, Go to sleep, sleep. Okay, the next morning the kid is actually very Why? Because from a fast of three, four hours, it jumped to a fast of eight hours or nine hours. So at that point, the fats are needed and the fats are not actually burned. So mm-hmm. the kid develops symptoms. So I want to talk about one case. So the samples, well, all the things you can imagine. And here is the free fatty acids and the, the ketone bodies, the hormones. I put some numbers, but, you know, for kids. And this is actually something quite important. So how long you can fast a kid and get an actual physiological response? Well, you can fast somebody for a week, but it doesn't make any sense. So eventually, depending on the age of the patient, well, if it is over age, 24 hours is enough. Because after twenty-four hours, well everything is depleted and you are not assessing again, you know, the metabolic pathway. So you can do it longer, you can keep going thirty-six hours or whatever. But you don't need to get crazy. And if it's an infant, I would say no more than eight hours, because clearly even if the kid is healthy, if you keep going, eventually it's gonna get hypoglycemic. What it won't help you. Okay, so let's talk about some cases and we'll put this in action. Okay, so and this is like I gave you the answer, it's a kid I just talked about. (laughs) Okay. So, or now 19 months old, healthy. Uh, Okay. Well, as I said, you know, the mother thought the kid was doing something odd at night and found this kid unresponsive on the floor with dirty movements that probably are you know seizures. So the medical history completely, completely negative. So the parents called the ambulance. The seizure apparently stopped after 34 minutes. No good for the brain of this kid. Definitely. And still unresponsive, go to ED, responsive only to pain. Start seizing again, they give value or whatever. And they put some unspecified fluids. We don't know. Sometimes it's difficult to know. You, know, you look in the notes and say, what the thought they use? Especially in the ambulance. And apparently, nobody took the sugar for this patient. Okay. So, it has to be, you know, twisty. So, accept the kid, fine, but lethargic. And hypotonic. well, this is kind of, you know, not really the same thing. You know, low muscle tone or weakness or whatever, <coughs> the same thing. But it's how the parents describe this. And also, withdraws only to pain. So, the ED people think well maybe it has an infection or somebody hit this kid on the head and we don't know or they gave something or the kid was playing with you know, the, the cabinet with, or the medications are at home or since we're talking about how are related <coughs> with metabolics this, this maybe is a metabolics so and they do the labs and the labs blood count is normal, electrolytes normal, oops, sorry Oh they have to point. Ah oh, okay. So I would do this. I wanna mess with this. So the sugar 75, very little ketones, and they tapped the kid and the kid didn't have many didges. Okay. So talk back to the EMS people and say, guys, did you take the sugar? Oh yeah, you did it. And we didn't find anything. I wish it was a mistake, so we didn't care. OK. So but just in case, we gave sugar to the kid. Because we have not believe it, but who knows. So 10% wide open, it means who knows how much. Well, eventually enough to raise the levels to 75. So normal sugar now. Uh, and the parents tell the story that the kid eats very few. And still wakes in the middle of the night. And the mother said, that might be the problem. Okay, but still a little real in the morning. So, we put together, you have seizures in coma, blood sugar undetectable after overnight fasting. So, what this might be? Well, this is, I mean, you have this, the liver is normal, we have liver low ketones, so somewhere here, probably, low or no in the fatty acid oxidation with So, the timing is quite important here. This eight-hour period of fasting is a key here in the diagnosis. So, how we can make the diagnosis of this thing? Well, so, let's see if it works. Okay, sorry. So, well, we can think that, as I said, if we think about hyperinsulinism, <coughs> it's probably not because of the timing, and the correction was quite easy. Uh, these kids usually have other things, and I'm going to show you later on. And here, it's probably most likely diagnosis. So, how we can diagnose this thing? Well, if the kid was born here in the U.S. or in Europe, <coughs> the kid likely has newborn screening, so we should know about this. <coughs> Is it possible to miss it? No, it's possible. So, how do you do it? Well, you take a sample, you look at the plasma, and you do the acid carnitine profile. So basically what you're checking here is what type of fats are present in the sample binding with carnitine. So remember, you know, our diets are probably heavily 80%, 70% in long-chain fatty acids and very long-chain fatty acids. That, I would say, from a biological point of view, makes absolute sense because they are huge, so we can get a super huge molecule oxidating all the way to CO2 and water and get a lot of energy. So it's very, very efficient, but the mitochondria, in order to get inside, needs carnitine to shuffle this. So what happens if you have an excess somewhere, starts binding with the carnitine, and the carnitine goes up there is a in this case, in the bloodstream, in the urine also, but We check in checking the bloodstream so we get the profile normally, and here you see the profile should go from high here to very low here, because that's a normal beta oxidation process you know, inside the mitochondria two carbons are, you know, chosen at a time, and in the chip cycle, you guys, you know uh, carriers and you feed, you know, the respiratory chain so eventually you sort of burn the fats all the way here here you are coming this way and you get stuck at C8 usually you've got C6 and C10 also but C8 is a marker for MCAT medium chain in the kind of so this is the most common type of fatty acid oxidation defect this is the one that is actually screened almost everywhere in the world in some places, it's the only thing they do. We screen for all the fatty acid oxidation defects that are under the sun so far. We have like 50 or 60 markers in our, you know, newer screening So, and it's usually in a couple of mutations, that one mutation is very common, so it's quite easy to make the diagnosis. The thing is this, 50% or I would say 40% of the patients with MCAT can be super sick at birth most of them, or the rest, never going to get sick. But, remember, the kid that crashes in the newborn period might have a And this can happen within the first four or five days, meaning that you don't have the results on the screen yet. So, how fast we get this? Well, if we get a sample, I send it for our lab here, I get the results in a couple of hours. So, if you have a patient and you, it's, it's, it's one of them. So that's Actually you know, the only way to work with this. So here, uh, and I am going to just you know skip this but well let me just go fast. So that's basically you know the low ketones. Um, this, you know, the Rice syndrome is something that you know in the past was, you know, linked with this and it was this classic, you know, encephalopathy with hypermonemia. Uh, I would say this could happen with a fatty acid oxygen defect, but it's not always the case. But, you know, Ray syndrome was sort of discovered before we knew much about this, so the thing about the FAST was storm. So how you made the diagnosis of this? Well, if you can see, there are three ways to do it. Well, basically, with the acid conning profile. And <clears throat> this, we're done. We don't need to take a sleep biopsy, grow the fibroblast, do anything crazy, because it's useless. So if you're doing research, it's fine, but from the practical point of view, it doesn't matter. How you treat these guys? Well, basically what you have to do is you have to feed them often. And the main thing here is not to give very long chain fatty acids. Uh, it's very difficult because eventually they're going to get stuck at the medium chain. So usually it has to be in you know, a high sugar diet, but the timing is what matters so basically what we tell these people is that when they're young, like six months, eight months, ten months, well, probably to feed them every four or six hours. After the first year of life, they can stand eight hours of fasting. So meaning that the more important thing is to give an emergency letter to the parents where everything is explained about, well, if your kid is not eating, has vomiting, has arthritis, fever, is mad, or whatever, well, you start giving lot of sugar. And if after, you know, two or three hours, it's still the same. You check the sugar at home. If it's going low, you run to the hospital, and we put an IV, and we fix the problem. The parents know a lot about this. They are well-educated. Usually, we don't have problems with kids with MCAT. Of course, the other side of the coin for this fatty acid oxidation defects is when the patients are completely asymptomatic, but you know for sure that they have a problem. So the parents don't believe you. So it's very difficult, very difficult to work with these parents because they don't have the experience of seeing a kid sick. I don't want them to get sick, but it's very important. So especially for the very much chain fatty acid, they'll cut, they'll cut. I can give you cardiomyopathy, so these kids can die. So eventually, if you see the letters I've sent to the parents, sometimes they say, "Well, he can give you this, 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 and this, and death." So meaning that is the reason why it's okay, I guess I have to go to see the doctor, you Okay, so here it's quite a very similar scenario so this seven month old was transferred, healthy, the sugar, 30 they give the sugar, it's kind of the same thing so you can see no major things, a seizure, okay, kind of a similar picture coma, the rate weakness, same story. Okay, you got only seizures, coma, peristate infection, and low sugar. So another thing is very important is all these very common illnesses that kids kid can get are the triggers that can push this downhill super fast. A common cold can put one of these kids in coma in six hours. So the parents should be extremely, extremely proactive and aggressive about this because otherwise, you know, it's going to be too light. So, because they don't eat, and as soon as they stop eating because they don't feel it, it's some stuffy nose, well, baby's going to basically decide what I do. I breathe through my mouth or drink the milk? Well, I'm going to breathe through my mouth because otherwise I'm going to die. So, they breathe, but they don't eat. And the sugar drops, and the next thing is the kids have a disease. So, again, since we are here, we... Talk about So, here, and it's important about the labs, is this. So, we get this normal, this normal, the sugar here, and here we got a urine that has a weird color and it's positive for blood. And since we are extremely smart people, we said, Oh, why don't you check the CK? Well, the CK is <coughs> a little high, I would say. So, well, eventually what happened here is this kid has rhabdomyolysis. so the muscle basically, you know, the energy drops, all the pumps that works to keep, you know, the, you know, the membrane of the cell <coughs> are not working fine, so eventually start, you know, leaking stuff. The CK is one of them, so it goes super, super high. So we have a kid, again, like the other one, that after fasting has hemoglycemia, but also has rhabdomyolysis. And of course, you know, besides the CK being super high, the problem of course is that, you know, this might have, you know, kidney failure. So, healthy seizure, increasing decay, hypoexitin, and in this catabolic context, and this is super important, terms of treatment. So, all these patients, when they're sick, they're catabolic. So, the whole idea of the treatment is to push everything around and start pushing it into anabolism. So we need to push this in terms of releasing a lot of insulin and start turning things around. So how you do it? You give a lot of sugar to this. The amount of sugar we give is massive. Uh, it's calculated based on what we know that is the amount of normally the liver releases to the bloodstream. It's about, you know, 5 million per kilo per minute. And, you know, back in the 60s, somebody took the time to do it but so usually five four five is normal so we give seven eight ten and as i said with ten usually we are fine except if the patient has hyposalism because you keep giving and you need more fifteen twenty and sometimes even more so we are here again and in this case of course you know we are talking about a fatty oxidation defect but the thing here is, and this is, you know, was part of the differential, but it's not the case here, so here we are talking about, oh, well I put more stuff here, sorry, well, why it's not a You disease, we going we'll just see it in a minute, so you can skip that, and this, usually, if you think about, you know, a problem with amino acids, usually you don't have this typical picture, so and this is just more to put. I mean, here we talk about you know MSUD and so, but because of the KETA So here we get the profile. So where is the problem here? Up here. Remember, before was here C8. Now we have C18O8, C16O8. So these are you know very long fatty acids. So we are thinking about a problem that starts early, so in the diet of this patient. So except for the very, very baby formulas that tend to have MCTs and supposing can go around the thing, this is 18 months old, so already this kid is eating food. So again, 70-80% of the diet is full of these guys. So here actually is no chance for this kid to start using the fats in any fashion. And the stop is right here. So eventually, they get very sick. So since, you know, in the muscle, eventually glycogen goes away very fast, eventually the fats are not available and the energy drops and we have, you know, the membrane problem and the rhabdomyolysis. So in this case, you know, it's one chain fatty acids or, you know, the trifunctional protein. could be both of them. So and again, the diagnosis is based on this. You do profile, you get it. If you want to do get fancy, you do molecular testing, you get molecular testing, but you don't need to keep getting crazy about again. Taking a piece of skin, or doing the fibroblast, or checking the enzyme. So, it's doable, but, as us actually put it here, but with this, it's enough. So, how fast we can get this? Well, as I said, the ASA candidate profile, we got it in two hours. So, we got the diagnosis the same day. So, you send the sample, in about a month, you get the result for the molecular testing. So, and that's enough. Okay, so, this is super fast, but it's quite interesting, because now it's in your ballpark. So, 45-year-old is not my patient. Well, sometimes I see people this young. Younger than me, so, so <laughs> this guy went for surgery across the street to the hernia repair, healthy, everything was fine, and on the morning of the third day, he started complaining about nausea and a little drowsy. And eventually, he gets into <laughs> lethargy and coma, and everybody said, Oh my, what happened here? Mm. The surgeon starts practicing said, we did nothing wrong. The surgery was wonderful. Look at this guy but, I don't know, the medicine people is doing something wrong here. Well, I would say the guy actually was right. Amazing people didn't know that this guy has a metabolic defect, nobody knew. And they just ran saline on this guy. Saline, 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 no sugar. Well, eventually, the sugar swoop, went down. So somebody called me and said, oh, this might be a fatty yes, acid defect, because I'm talking about this. So I get an acid cardinate profile and I get this. So this guy also has MCAT. He lived 45 years with MCAT. Was no more screen when he was born, so nobody knew anything. And he was always healthy because probably, you know, the mother fed him every two hours until he was six. Eventually the mother said, you know what? That's going wrong. But the guy kept eating, eating, eating until one day they got into the OR. And they said, oh, just sailing, which It's sure you don't need Actually, it sounds odd. <coughs> but sometimes I ask over there, say, well, you know, we need sugar and sailing. I said, oh, but we cannot get it. I said, you kidding me. Just call the farmers and get a bag of sugar. But, well, it happened. So but it's customary usually to use just normal sailing. And that's fine. So here we go. Somebody figure out this. The guy was treated and said, i never go back to the water, I'm in this hospital. <laughs> so. so, that was a short one, but to remember, these things can happen in adults, can be asymptomatic for decades, and one day get seen. The same applies for rear cycle defects. Some patients with rear cycle defects can live their whole life without any problems, and then one day they crash if they have a surgical procedure or something like that. Anesthesia, so, Especially a female with OTC that you know, I mean, having a that helps her, she goes around, goes around, goes around. But one day, when there's a lot, a lot of breakdown of protein, so eventually your cycle get overwhelmed, and the ammonia goes up, and the patient gets symptomatic. Okay, so now we switch into another one, that is this nine-month-old female who has a large liver. Go to the pediatrician, pediatrician said, oh, yeah, it's a little big, but don't worry keep going, keep going, and I said, I guess it's too big, something might be happening here. Eventually, going back in the history, they figure out that the kid was not very happy at birth, has hypoglycemia, they treat the kid with IV sugar, and send it home, and that was it. So, if you ask me, well, the kid has symptoms at birth, related with the disease, or was it coincidence? I'm not completely sure, but, went home, and, it take a good six months to be around with a liver that was growing, growing, and growing. The belly was getting this big, and the kid probably wasn't growing much. Of course, you know the kid vomits. They change the formula a hundred times. and Never happened. And eventually said, "Okay, give me a break. just get an ultrasound. Take a look at the liver." So the kid looks like this. All these kid looks the same. So I just take this picture. It's not our patient, but you know, it's a big belly. He got already but this is the size of the liver of this guy, okay, quite big. So, when you see this hypoglycemia, phenomegaly, well, the you know, storage disorder, you know, gets to your mind. And if we are talking about hypolysemia probably like an disorder in your mind. So, somebody check the labs and basically get this: no ketones, no resistant substances. What? from a practical point we I would say, is a very poor predictor man, and so, I usually, even if I think it becomes a me, I take a sample, check for gamma and p accumulation, and that's it, uh, no bother, because, you know, you can get fructose out of sugars, you know, you're know, sure, you can use, you know, tips and separate one from the other, but it's very specific, <coughs> so the lactate is 5.1, this is our normal in our lab, and the standard is more or less around 2, so it's high lactate, uric acid, high of course you know, since you thought about glycerin disorders, and you thought about glycerin a type 1A and type 1A goes with all this, if you look in the book, well you order all this, otherwise you want to say what the hell do you order uric acid in this baby? well, because the uric acid goes up and cholesterol is also high and triglycerides are super high so biochemically, and this is quite interesting we use this to monitor the treatment of these kids so I have a kid who is difficult to control unfortunately the kid has other problems has also sickle cell anemia, what makes everything much worse uh, and the mother brings back, you know, the log for the sugars always fine, 70, 75, 80 so I look at the kid, is no growing and I check this and all this is abnormal so I know that the metabolic control is poor despite the sugar. So the sugar is an easy thing to fix here but all these guys take more time so basically with all this and here, you know, somebody decided, okay, let's do a fasting test on this game I uh, we're going to do it but the slide illustrates one thing that is important this. Okay. So you do test. So usually when you do the fasting test and sometimes you try to differentiate one thing from the other you wait until the end with the sugar drops and the nurses there say okay now give a shot of glucagon and check what happened with the response. No response? Give sugar. Don't wait. Well why is not responding? Well clearly this kid is unable to break down glycogen when you eat glucagon which is the hormone that actually triggers that. So that's another thing, and the lactate goes up. So, and I'm going to show you a slide where you can understand why all this is happening easily. So, uh, fasting over glucose, right, lactate, no response to glucagon, lactate, and well, somebody sent this already, and nitriticate. Really so, uh, here it's so the normal thing. This is just to refresh your memory about this. You know this very well. So <clears throat> basically, what we're assuming is as this guy cannot break down this, gets here, or actually gets here, breaks down this. But the problem is this: glucose 6-phosphate, that I say you know is, is a node here, usually can have three main phases. Goes up, more glycogen get rid of the phosphorus free glucose, go to the bloodstream, gets here or to the point pathway. So <clears throat> what happened here is that if the glucose is phosphorylated, it's charged and cannot leave the cell. So it stays inside the cell. If it stays inside the cell, eventually what's going to happen is this. The block is there, so you get hypoglycemia you increase the flow in this pathway, so you get hyperuricemia. you get a lot of pyruvic the excess eventually <coughs> goes to lactate, you get lactic acidemia. the alanine goes high, so you check amino acid in blood and reflects reflects that this is true the whole thing, you know, with checking lactate is tricky you know, in terms of taking the sample, doing an ice, into it a lot, and all this I would say 90% of the time is longer so even I go to the lab myself and drove it there very difficult. So, but if I had plasma amino acids and the element is normal and I have urine organic acid, it's not like because in the urine it's probably bogus. So it's a simple way to sort out one thing from the other. And hyperlipidemia. and here is the fat part, so you divert this to fatty acid. So you get hyperlipidemia and that's basically how this happens. So, the defect is here, so this happens you know, inside the cell in the reticulum, so here is the glucose phosphate, it's a transporter in the membrane, gets in the lumen, here is the enzyme, get rid of the phosphorus, here is one transporter out to the cytosol, and another transporter to the bloodstream. So, it's a block here, you basically cannot process this and accumulate, and you develop micronutrient acid type 1A. Type 1B is the same thing with immunodeficiency. So, those kids also have infections all the time. So, the treatment is basically, and here you have all this glycogen accumulation there. So, I'm just very short in terms of treatment. Basically, the whole point here is to try to avoid the buildup of glycogen. So, how do you do that? Well, it's tricky because eventually every little excess is going to build up. So the use of overnight infusions of sugar works. But when they get older, you can get starch, uncooked starch during the day. And a big sample before going to bed, the uncooked starch stays in the gut and releases very slowly free sugar. So it's like a pump, so to speak and eventually, you know, this goes around as I said you have to be very careful about the nutrition of these kids because all these other things are a little off so usually with very good metabolic control these kids do very well otherwise they are short, they have big bellies they have lungy problems and eventually complications out of, you know, the high uric acid, the high fats and all this stuff so this is basically, you know, the plan here, small fat, whatever, this is kind of the same thing, so here as I say, you know, the infusion when you use it but uh, for adults it's less likely. Sometimes you have to put a G2 on this kit because it's a simple way to deliver this but it's a temporary same time few years you, you remove the tube and back to normal. And this is key and again, they got an emergency letter, they go around with that, and when the kid gets sick, they run to the AD, and the kid is treated. If they wait, well, the sugar can go drop to zero and they get super, super sick. So that kid I mentioned to you with the sickle cell was well, another problem because it's clearly, and the kid also, you know, has other issues so it's very complicated. So here is corner cornstarch thing. The cornstarch takes like it's not pleasant, but it's like, you know, it's like power. So you can mix it with some flavor stuff, because most kids don't like it much, but it's not a lot, you know, it's like, you know, maybe half a cup or something like that. And they, they do well. So all this that I mentioned, and well, of course, you know, they need the sure, high infusion rate. The bicarb, well, it's something that we use. It in some of the things when they get into acidosis we have to be back. it's not like any other case that only with expansion of, you know, the intravascular component and things are going to get back to normal they won't because the lactic acid is there and you have to find a way to fix it so and here, you know, it's for this, you know, for the type 1b you give you know, pouring factor simulated and it works very well so you give that Otherwise, you know, they, have, they tend to have, you know, crankers uh, and, you know, lip ulcers, and it's, they get really, really sick. Okay, so in the last, you know, two minutes, probably, we just go into this, I guess it's the last one. So uh, this kid, four-year-old, get, you know, normal breathing, vomiting, respiratory stress. It's a kid that didn't grow. Well, let me see because maybe, ah, oh, no, it's the same thing. So let's just go here. So the next case it's a kid that besides having hypoglycemia also has acidosis. So let me just So the difference here, as I said, is this. It has a liver that is palpable, but not super big. And when you check the labs, the difference with the other guy, and this is an, an interesting thing because, you know, the kid is really acidotic, the name gap is high, lactate is high, glucose is low, the enzyme's are high, has ketonuria, and the CBC is normal so meaning that again the important thing here is besides the hypoglycemia it's also very high and metabolic acidosis so you can supposedly give glucagon if you want so but be careful because if there's no glycogen in the liver might be a problem but basically giving sugar is the way to go so you give all the sugar you give the bicarb and here it's the history what matters. So the patient, when he gets <coughs> sick or a common thing, starts vomiting and goes to the hospital often. So you ask the patient and say, yeah, every time I get sick, I go to the hospital, they put an IV, they give me sugar, I get back. So he has hypoglycemia, nobody knows. And, yeah, eats a little bit, but not <coughs> what. Well. So question is, what happened with him? Well, he missed supper, slept all night, and, well, having fun, and the patient said that usually he wakes up at some point, I guess juice, since he was a baby. So here we have a four-year-old that after 12 hours of fast get hypoglycemic, but also develops severe metabolic acidosis and also has ketosis. So the problem here is in the gluconeogenesis pathway. So it's a little shorter interval, and also the kid is getting acidotic. So how this works? Well, the enzyme is here, and basically what's happened here is that the reverse process of making sugar from below, you know, from glycerol or amino acids, is blocked. So we have a patient that now is like 20 or something like that, and recently actually happened with him. So he is always, always fine. No problem. He knows the drill. Everything, except that I guess in Thanksgiving he got too much fun, and on top of that, you know, he drank, he drank alcohol, and here, you know, he have the difference between one and the other. So the guy skipped all meals, was just drinking, drinking, passed out. Well, next thing he got a seizure, was brought to the hospital. We knew the guy, so clearly it was not a matter of making a diagnosis. So, but I have, you know, like a long chat with him saying, listen, you are, you know, college students, you know this very well. And I said, yeah, I understand. So that was a bit of fun, but well. So, and talking about about these teenagers, so or that is probably in your ballpark, used to have a patient with hyperinsulinism. So the guy was 16, 17, on diazoxide. And, you know, a low-protein diet because it was, you know, a leucine-sensitive thing. So, he was fine with the diastose. Of course, you know, the diet, forget it. So, oh, yeah, I went with my friends and, you know, I ate chicken. So, chicken wings, how many? I don't know, 20. So, well, there's a lot of protein there. I have to be careful. So, one day, what he did was to show her mother, his mother, that actually this was real. So he had mad with the mother and said, I won't take the diet He didn't. And he went out and he ate a lot. So the next thing he was having a seizure on the sidewalk. So <coughs> broke to the hospital. So this is to kind of just keep going and get into the summary. So, same story. This guy knew that the diet was sort of keeping him around, regardless of the diet. That of course should be both things. But he has in his hands something very powerful, so he showed the mother, well, you know, if you don't pay attention to me, I'm going to do this again, so of course I claim to him, so you just have a seat on the sidewalk, if you have a seat in the middle of the trade, you get killed, but, you know, it's a team. So, in summary, all these things that are associated with how the shortest handle, how the shortest store, how the shortest breakdown. down, how the sugar is resynthetized or how the fats help to spare sugar are causes from our point of view that can cause hypoglycemia <coughs> these are less common so mitochondrial disorders can give you eventually hypoglycemia but it's, it's kind of far removed in the pathway so it gives you more acidosis and muscle disorder uh, liver disease as a secondary thing can give you hypoglycemia and of course you know the hyperinsulinism and all these kinds so the important thing about this is, the diagnosis is based on understanding how normal things work and where the blocks might be the sampling for this is very simple but it has to be taken timely. otherwise it doesn't work be careful with the glucone when you're going to use it because maybe it's no glycogen there to be mobilized, so it's going to be a problem So, you give this, no screen, and as soon as you get the samples, you can give as much sugar as you want because you already got the sample. And when you give the sugar, give a lot of sugar. Don't be shy, okay? Just go ahead. Nothing's gonna happen. So, urine, this is probably the most important thing, and you know, freeze urine, you never know, it's gonna help. You get a CSF sample, freeze it, so you know thing in the brain. So, this is probably the most important thing. If you do the diagnosis and the interventions patients do well, but this is to be done super, super fast. And the whole thing about slowing down 5 seconds, when you put the needle to put the IV, get the sample, takes 30 seconds. You get it, you put the IV, and you start infusing sugar, that's it. Nothing is going to happen. If the pigeon is seizing already, well, it's going to keep seizing, and if it's not seizing, it probably won't, so get the right sample. If you push the sugar, and half an hour later takes off the samples, forget it, it's gone. So, can happen anytime, and this is very important. Adolescents are a big problem, because of all these things I'm telling you, and adults might have metabolic disease, and they don't know. They can kill the patient. It's very important to remember that for everybody. This, this is life threatening things. Diagnosis usually takes forever. Patients go to the hospital. Like this guy, go to the ED, get sugar, go home. Six months later, the same thing. Six months later, so years going around. So, this is as everything and everything we do. If we think about what we're doing, we might get it we don't think about what we're doing, we won't get it. We get a pile of labs, and we're going to call somebody to make an interpretation of them because we don't know what it is. Or we might find things that we don't know. The tests are quite simple. The samples are easy to take, and the timing is important. And the initial management is also quite simple. It's sugar, very simple, I'll big sugar. And with that, you save the patient, and when the patient is saved, You have a cup of coffee, you look at your labs, you start thinking, you open the books, you go online, you call somebody, but the patient is safe. And I guess we're done.